One of my favorite studies of all time is this group of housekeepers split into two different groups, right? One group is simply told that they're meeting the Surgeon General's requirement for exercise. That's it. And the other group is told nothing. So the group that is told that they're meeting the Surgeon General's requirement for exercise, lower weight, lower blood pressure, lower body fat, lower um, BMI, like lower waist to hip ratio in four weeks time, like massive changes. And all of this is just the story that you're telling yourself. And yet your brain hates to be wrong. So if that's the story that I believe, I find ways to manifest that. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutia and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey guys, it's RJ Singh coming to you from Ultra Habits and I want to introduce our next guest, Dr. Rebecca Heiss, who is a evolutionary biologist and expert on the subject of fear. Her book, Instinct, is actually coming out this month. I am waiting for it to get out so I can read it. We had an amazing conversation, not only about fear, but about our instincts and how what was originally designed is an operating system to keep us alive has now at times gotten and gets in our way of success and how to actually embrace and work with our instincts and realize when we're operating from a place of scarcity or fear and how we can shift and lean in to the discomfort and ultimately work through um, our, our basic operating system. Now, the conversation is deep, it's enjoyable, uh, she's super animated, so if you get a chance, check it out on YouTube. Again, like always, leave us feedback. The good, the bad, the ugly, we want to hear it all. Ultimately, this show is designed for you to help you get better, faster, stronger, smarter, all that good stuff. Anyways, take care, guys. Hope you enjoy the show. So I want to talk to you, Rebecca, about our baseline instincts, like what fundamentally moves us as human beings? Um, two things, truly, sex and survival. That's it. <gasps> That's literally it. Yeah, because <laughs> like we, we try and overcomplicate it. And, and I do the same thing. Like I, I have a new book coming out. I cover seven instincts, right? But each of them can relate back to sex or survival. Literally the, the first thing that we do when we see a person, right, is can I procreate with that? Or is that a threat? But that's all we're doing, right? Do I need to run away or do I need to run towards? Sex and survival, that's what it boils down to. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And as someone that's in the recovery community, I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's funny because our inventory is all built on the premise that we have what they call God-given instincts or instincts, right. and they're out of whack. So effectively what we're doing on a daily basis is we're reviewing how our instincts are not operating within proportion of actually what's happening. And it's this continual review process. So from your perspective, how is our instincts not evolved with the reality of today? Oh my gosh, that's, that is literally the premise of what I study because the whole idea is like, we've had this massive shift in our environment, right? In the, the last 200 years or so, we've had technology take off and populations have increased and we have these massive exponential increases in these things. But biology operates on a much different time frame. Right? So biologically, our brains haven't caught up. 
they're still stuck in the stone age, you know, back in the day when we lived in a sparse, dangerous environment. And so all of our instincts are set to that age, even though the environment around us is massively changed. So it's, it's the reason that we stay afraid of snakes. That's number one fear, number one fear. And now in Australia, that makes a little more sense, I guess, but still for like, for Americans walking around in the Costco parking lot, trying not to die of snakes is an absurd thing. We should be afraid of hamburgers, right? Number one killer, heart disease. We should be afraid of hamburgers or of cars because massive fatalities due to cars, but our brains haven't caught up to the modern environment. And so as a result, we stay afraid of the wrong things. And yeah, that we can go a lot deeper into that if, if you're interested, but. Well, you know, what's super interesting and I'm going to actually unpack that example because I'm a trail runner and I grew up in California and we, we do have rattlesnakes, but you know, as you growing up a kid, as a kid in Australia, you're, you're savvy with snakes. The smallest things can kill you here. And and I was talking to my neighbor yesterday because he we found a black snake, which is poisonous, and it was dead, and we were playing around with it and everything. And I said to him, I said, you know what's super weird, Dave, is that when I see snakes when I'm actually running, I'm okay. But mm. it's this whole pre- kind of idea and conception before the run of me picturing my ass running out there and this big brown snake's like, hey, get over here. But in rea in reality, it it's funny. So, cause you talk about imagination and kind of how we, we, um, we leverage, I guess, um, pictures in our head or imagination to predict the future. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, this is a great gift of human brain, right? We have this frontal lobe, which means we can think about the future. We can have imagination. We can predict and analyze. And unfortunately, it's also the bane of the human existence is that we do this. And yet, because our brain is stuck thinking that we live in this dangerous, sparse environment, we lock onto the negative because it's always the negative things that could kill us. So the example that I give is if you think about sort of a lovely day in the ancestral environment, right? And you're out and you're picking berries and like, ooh, mm, delicious. Like I found a nice patch of berries, delicious, love it. And then you hear a little rustling behind you. Your first thought is not, oh, it's probably a songbird to come like sit on my shoulder and sing to me. No, your first thought is, let me get the hell out of here, right? Like it's, it's a tiger, it's a snake, it's something that's gonna kill me. And that's good. Like that, that's what kept us alive for 200,000 plus years. Now today, it's your cell phone going off, right? It's that ping, that ding, that thing that you immediately have to respond to. And your brain goes into this stress overload where we're just loaded down with cortisol and saying, oh my gosh, it's something I have to deal with right away. It's, it's not, right? So our brain locks onto these imaginary tigers um, and, and really drills into that negative kind of thinking. So we stay locked in this pattern of anxiety, which is just future thought. Right? If, if we think about the past, we stay stuck in depression. If we think about the future too much, we stay stuck in anxiety of all the things that could go wrong. Or we could use this actively to visualize a different future and actually use this brain for some real powerful good by harnessing that, that visualization practice for good things that could come rather than just the very worst case scenario, which is how our brains are programmed. Yeah, it's um, one of the things that David Goggins says, and I love, he says, one of his competitive advantages, and I'm paraphrasing in my own language, is that he can see himself at the end very clearly. And I mean, if we look at management gurus and, you know, the Tony Robbins ilk, and even Napoleon Hill, there's a lot of this visualization, there's a lot of commentary on the power of that, right? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, the brain hates to be wrong, right? It hates to be wrong. And so if you can create a really powerful visualization, your brain doesn't know very much difference between you actually doing the thing and you visualizing the thing. So there's been fascinating research, right? Where you, you, you think about strengthening your elbow. You know, this is absurd, right? Well, who wants to strengthen their elbow? But that, that was the test it did. Strengthen the elbow or strengthen the, the strength of your, I think it was your index finger, right? And they had people like do exercises that would strengthen both of those things. And then they had a separate group, just think about doing those exercises. No real difference. They both strengthen. So the idea of your brain like visualizing and taking in the placebo effect is so overlooked because we, we kind of say, oh, it's woo woo, right? It's out there. It's, it's, it's aligned with that manifestation thing and stuff we just call woo woo and magic. We, we don't think about it. Well, yeah. And there's actual science behind it. All right. So one of my favorite studies of all time is this group of housekeepers split into two different groups, right? One group is simply told that they're meeting the Surgeon General's requirement for exercise. That's it. And the other group is told nothing. So the group that is told that they're meeting the Surgeon General's requirement for exercise, lower weight, lower blood pressure, lower body fat, lower um, BMI, like lower waist to hip ratio in four weeks time, like massive changes. And all of this is just the story that you're telling yourself. And yet your brain hates to be wrong. So if that's the story that I believe, I find ways to manifest that. Man, there's so much in that. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was talking to these dudes yesterday and they sit next to me in a shared office space and their kids are really like, they're struggling in the millennial way, video games, lack of resilience, that whole piece acting out. And we we're talking about how one of the kids is living up to what the environment is telling him you're you're uh, you know you're fuck up blah blah like he's almost it, it that the in Eckhart Tolle talks about this like the ego will use any identity it doesn't matter if it's bad that's your dude yeah right like and 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 he's almost like he's now developed his narrative around what other people are telling him and it's now giving him this sense of identity so if he can't be a successful productive human and he's getting attention from his environment by being fucked up, so to speak, yeah. it yeah. still is a result, right? Like he, he, the brain doesn't know any different, right? Absolutely. Yeah, your brain's going, oh, I'm getting what I need, which for a long time was attention, right? If you had attention, you had resources. If you had resources, you survived. So yeah, his brain is locking on to saying, this is my identity. And even if I want to change it, like why, why would I? Because I'm getting all the things that I need, even if it's not a positive thing. Right. It's, it's the example, my dog who's chewing on a bone right now. I hope you can not hear it. Is it good? Yeah, he's Audio. good. He's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's good. <laughs> but it's, it's the dog, right? Who's like barking, 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 barking. And you pay it attention. You're like, stop it. And they're like, oh, cool. That's all I need to do. I'll just keep barking because that's how I. That's like my four year old. Right. Exactly. exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no different than the dog, I'll tell you. And we'll talk about that in a little bit because. We talk, we're going to talk about habits, but I also think it's relevant to narrative. Like when you're looking at shifting a narrative, it needs to re it, it needs to be replaced with a stronger frame, right? Yes. Like you can't just get rid of something. And we'll talk about that in the habits. What I, what I want to unpack though, and one of the reasons that ultra habits was created and the tagline is redefining masculinity and not necessarily male or female, but just masculinities and energy mm -hmm. was we were 
when we were coming up with a brand, we were looking at the male in today's society and through the kind of affirmative action movement and the movement to get equality for minorities, women, um, men have somehow, they feel whether real or perceived, and I'm being careful with my words, they feel kind of left out of the run. And you see that in increased suicides, depression, men are dying at uh, record speeds at, at their own hands. I would like to talk about what your view is on evolutionary gender roles and where and how have men become so confused? Because I'd like to say this, even as someone that feels quite aware and I hang out with other evolved men, I can somehow get confused many of times and not really understand while I'm changing nappies, I'm trying to be a hero. My wife's saying you don't have to be a hero, but I know she really wants me to be a hero. Like <laughs> what's going on? And so yeah. can, can you talk about that please, Rebecca? Cause I know oh. it's really important to the listeners. Absolutely. And, I, and let me first thank you for having this podcast and, and you know, creating a platform so that we can have these discussions because I think having the discussion, being aware that A, there are other men that are feeling the same way, that are enlightened or evolved or whatever it is that you want, and still going, wait a second, where's this coming from? I think it's so important. So, I mean, let's take this from an evolutionary perspective. Evolutionarily, we valued men for strength and size and status, right? For literally bringing home the bacon. Now, Today, in modern society, they're, they're seemingly displaced, right? Because women are perfectly capable of doing all the jobs that, well, that their value and their worth and very identity might feel tied to, right? The bringing home of the bacon was, was men's role in, in evolutionary times. And today, the role of masculinity really hasn't, I think, caught up to the modern world because men were never really forced to change to survive. So, so bear with me here because I'm, I'm going down a route that is a little complex. I think if we're living in this, like if we can all agree to the assumption that we li- are living in a sort of male dominant, male hierarchical society, um, not that things aren't changing, but if that was the original structure, women had to adopt masculine traits in order to survive. Because look, if I'm pregnant and you leave me as my partner, I need to still survive. I need to find work. I need to pay for things. And so we adopted these masculine, originally masculine skills, ancestrally masculine skills of bringing home the bacon and finding work. And shoot, we went to, during World War II for for Americans, we went to, we went into the factories, right? And so women have adopted this sort of masculine identity. We have not given the same permission for men in today's society to adopt homemaking being a kindergarten teacher. We still talk about male nurses, right? Um, so I think what, what we're not attending to is that we haven't given the same grace to men because you guys, if you're, if you're not earning higher status um, or earning of higher status, earning more money, um, what we find in the research is that there's higher anxiety, um, erectile dif- dysfunction problems, um, general overall mood disorders, depression, like all of these things are linked because that was your identity. And we have not welcomed men into the home the same way that we've welcomed and championed women in the workforce. So um, as much work as we still have to do in sort of creating gender equality for women in the workforce, I think there's just as much, if not more, work to be done in welcoming men into the home 
um, so that you're not the butt of every sitcom joke, right? Like saying, oh, you're not capable of changing the baby. Let me get it. You know, you can't cook a dinner. Let me get it. Um, we have a ways to go there. Yeah, this, uh, <laughs> it, it was funny because my wife and I went and bought a barbecue the other day because she is now falling in love with barbecuing because we barbecued on holiday and she realized why men love it. And she's saying to me, she goes, she goes, when I went in the, she went in the barbecue shop, she goes, it was like a testosterone feast. And she goes, I, I don't understand. And here's the stereotype coming from her. She goes, I don't understand why that, that whole saying of, I won't step in the kitchen as a man, but I'm happy to barbecue. She goes, it's the same thing. And it's, it it's, it's, it's just, but it's, it's really interesting. We still have a ways to go in bridging that gap. And I find for myself that I have to stay out of role conversations with other men or else I start to get confused. So like if I start to listen to other men that are bitching about mm -hmm. the, the confusion at home, it starts to confuse me. And I guess what I'm saying is for me, what I have to do is focus on doing what needs to be done and adding value versus the role. So what I mean by that is if I'm at home and a nappy needs to be changed, the dishes need to be washed, I need to take that work call, focus on what needs to be done versus this perceived role. Because if I get caught up in that, it's a slippery slope. No, absolutely. And, and you know, to be, um, and you can cut this out if you want, but I'll challenge you even to listen to the, to the systemic language we use, right? Like if I'm bitching, well, and I use that too, right? Well, okay, now we're only derogatory towards females about complaining, but if I'm complaining, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing when you dive in and I get called out all the time on, on the language that I use of like saying, you know, oh, he's, he's babysitting. No, he's not. He's at home taking care of the kids, his kids, incidentally, right? Um, or all of these, all of these ways that we that we don't really value men in the home, or we say, well, that's the role that a woman should be playing. So it's it's a it's a separate thing when men do it. Um, that separation we've got. I think you have a really good point in saying, well, what's what needs to be done? How can I add value instead of saying? well, that's what a woman does. That's what a man does, right? I, I can take out the trash as a woman. Can my husband put on an apron and bake? Yes, absolutely. Because if baking needs to be done, baking needs to be done. It's not my role. It's not his role. Um, but boy, it's a challenge to, to, not, to not allow uh, societal or, or evolved preferences you know, fall into these, these stereotypical roles and say, oh, you shouldn't, that's, that's weird. Don't, don't do that. I feel that we're all hypocritic and mm -hmm. that re successful relationships are one when I, I mean, romantic relationships are one where our hypocrisy is okay with each other. Like we're, we're okay with like with my, with my wife, if you talk to her, she'll, she'll be quite open and she'll be all very aware around this role stuff. But mm -hmm. when we're not operating with that level of awareness, we'll fall back into hypocritical behaviors, but we're okay with that. And I, I find like our, our hypocrisy aligns in certain ways and, and it's okay. And, um, but it, I mean, in our household, for instance, my wife fixes everything. She puts everything, I'm tactically like stupid. Like I don't do well with building, I outsource everything. But she'll, <laughs> she does all the stuff that's traditionally 
you know, and I'll be carrying the baby, right? If we're somewhere, because yes. it's, just, it's just who can do that task yep. more efficient and effectively, right? So- Yeah, and I love that. And, and I love your vulnerability in saying, in like calling out your own hypocrisy, because I think if if we're truly aware, like I'm a, I'm a I forget that, oh gosh, I didn't have to put this in the show notes, but somebody wrote a, a great book called Bad Feminist. And I'm 100% that, right? 100%. I love wearing heels, despite knowing the history. Like I put on makeup still, despite knowing the history. And when we're aware of that, and we, we are choosing in full awareness, okay. You know, when, when I get off the plane and I, I talk to my husband and he asks me about the pilot and I say, oh, the pilot, he was... And my husband goes, ah, gotcha. Like, oh yeah, you're right. You called me out. Thank you for, for bringing that to my awareness. Um, I, I think instead of feeling the blame and shame that I think so many people immediately go to, it's a, oh, huh, let's be curious about why it is that I immediately think of a male pilot or immediately think of a female kindergarten teacher or immediately think of a male engineer. You know, Let's be curious about this rather than feeling bad about it. Cause I don't think that that accomplishes anything. And I'm going to go out on, on another controversial limb here. Yeah. Two days ago, I shot a video with a female friend because people were asking is ultra habits for men. And I was like, no, it's really just about understanding masculinity and femininity and they're fluid and they play in men's lives and women's life. And I shot this video with a, a fellow ultra runner, Ali, who, to me is a female embraces ultra habits. She's a doctor. She pushes herself. She loves to compete. There's a lot of masculine traits there. She loves, and we've been talking and, and maybe you can shine some light here. Her and I talk all the time about how she feels that is close as she gets to women. And I've seen it play out firsthand. Yes. She's not the warmest person, but she is a very nice, a nice woman. And she was saying that her level of competitiveness, and I've seen it play out, is frowned upon by other women that are so called about the women's lib and women's liberation. Like if I overtly explicit, if I explicitly stated my desire to run and win that race, it's okay. Sure. But when she does it, it's so yeah but by by other women yeah so can we talk a little bit about that because i find that super super interesting if you look at women uh, american politics for instance yeah look at hillary clinton i know she wasn't everyone's favorite but it just women we were the ones that brought her down 100 percent. because oh no, no no you cannot be in that role you are a woman you belong x you can't have this drive. You can't have this masculine energy. We don't respect that in other women. And that is hugely problematic. The same way we don't respect men, other men don't respect other men who show feminine characteristics. We, we push those that if you, if you move outside of your gender norm, the, uh, the same sex as you will be the first to step out and say, no, get back in line get back in line. I am here. You have to be alongside me. And, and I think, especially for women, because we, so men duke it out, men solve things quickly, kind of directly. That's how you confront, you compete, right? It's whether it's a fight or a verbal fight or a physical fight, women, women are much more circuitous in the way they fight and they fight here with gossip. 
And so it's easy for me to say, oh, can you believe, can you believe what Allie is doing? I can't believe she's running another race. Can you believe that? And now I have the circle talking about Allie and wow, she, she's not very, or she's not very cooperative, is she? Yeah. I wonder if her husband has to take over for all the time that she's spending out training. You know, this, this is how we compete with one another. And what we do is we bring that person back down to where they belong. And, and, and I'm, I'm saying that I hope, you know, this is an audio version. So you can't see this in quotes, right? Where they belong is in quotes, but, but where the gender norm would, would find them acceptable. And um, unfortunately, you know, that's, that's not true in today's society. It's just not, but it's really, really difficult for us to feel comfortable around other people that, that are more fluid in their energies that are able to say, actually, you know, I'm, I feel this competitive masculine energy coming out right now. And that's okay. Right. And, and if I want to go home and put on heels, that's okay too. But we're, our brains like very black and white, very clear vision. So we always know who I'm going to get. So if I call up RJ, I know he is going to do X, Y, and Z because he is a man and men do this, right? We can compartmentalize and box. Um, the same way, you know, if I ask you to name a color and a tool, the first thing that you come up with, red hammer. Tell me I'm wrong, right? It was either red or blue, hammer, screwdriver, or wrench, right? Because we categorize. We don't think of lavender washing machine. We don't think outside of these boxes that we create for people. And when somebody does move outside of that box, it's, it feels very threatening because now I, I don't know who you are. I can't predict your behavior. And, and so we want to just push them back down to where we know, right? Quote unquote, know how they are, how they should be behaving so that we feel more comfortable in our own interactions. It's pretty messed up. It's fascinating stuff. And I think as you're talking, reflecting on people that I tend to really admire or find interesting, there are people that seem to have juxtaposed all these contradictory um, traits or, um, or roles, and they're able to integrate it and be fluid. I find people that can do that effectively and gracefully super interesting because it says something about them. It says that they're beyond, they're operating beyond the role and they're authentic to the fact that, you know, as they say in Star Wars, uh, I'll paraphrase, black and white thinking is of the Sith. Yep. Right? And it's about kind of being able to live in the gray. Yeah, and our brains fight that every day. So, so I admire people like you, um, as well, who are, who are able to, to get out and, and appreciate the complexity of humans. Um, but our brains actively fight that, right? They, they like clean, simple, clear. It's, it's uncomfortable when I, when I don't know, I don't know your position on this. I don't know. It's why we tend to stick to our groups, right? It's we stick to people who think like us, who act like us, who look like us, who are part of our tribe, as it were, because they're safe. I understand them. And, and people like you who are reaching out and saying, wait, that's complex. Ooh, you don't fit that norm. How it's curiosity truly that I think allows us to start to overcome some of these instincts, some of these full on, you know, boxed in categories when we can be curious that replaces the fear that we might otherwise experience. Brilliant. So now that we have a grasp on this, how do we 
create awareness and start to work with the blind sides we have? Like, what are the tools that we can use? Um, is awareness, right? It's, it's recognizing that we're not aware of what we're not aware of. And there is a ton of stuff that we're not aware of, right? If we, if we recognize that our brain is getting hit by 400 billion bits of information every single second, um, and we're only consciously able to process 2000 bits per second, that means that what 99.9999999% of the time, we're completely unaware of what our brain is processing in the background. So starting with the awareness that we're not nearly as aware as we think, I think the, the second tool or tip is then to be curious because that skirts around that defensive mechanism that we talked about of like, oh, well, I, I, I feel threatened by this. Um, so instead of saying I should or I shouldn't, we can say, huh, I wonder why why is this coming up for me? And, and that why question is so powerful, right? Being non-experts as it were at our, at our own experience in life and saying, huh, that's really fascinating. I wonder, wonder why my programming is, is doing that. So when we ask why, we begin to show up as that non-expert and, and start to, what I, what I say, you start to be present to get it right rather than having to be right. So I'm here to, to get it right, to like question, to, to be curious rather than showing up to, to prove myself, to say, this is who I am and by golly, I'm right and I, I will reject anything else that you might throw at me. Um, I think, I think that's, that's how we can start to uncouple the, the fear, the true like emotionally based fear from the logic of saying, huh, this is, I'm experiencing this, why? When we uncouple that, because we think we're logical creatures. We're not. We're driven all by emotion. We're driven all by that 99.99999%. So um, one of the one of the big tools that I, I give people are um, asking people what, who there is who is on their advisory board. Right? Who's going to tell it to you straight? Because if you don't have somebody who can tell you honestly, hey, Beck, you're not that funny, right? Like that's oh oh wow. I, I thought I was. I've been operating from this strength from this truth, quote unquote truth. And if that's not true, I need to shift. So I'm a huge fan of, of personal advisory boards. I also highly recommend getting a journal and journaling every single day for just a few, few minutes, 30 seconds for goodness sakes. What's on your mind? What are your priorities? What are you thinking about? Because what it does is it holds you accountable. Right? If you look back, you're going to say, oh, wow, I've, I've grown a lot. I've changed a lot. Or all of these fears that I thought were, you know, really in my real tigers coming to, coming to get me, you know, five days later, nothing happened. Right? So journaling, personal advisory boards, reflection, um, and then big fan of 360 reviews as well. So I, um, I don't know, if, have you taken a 360 review before, RJ? Yeah, nothing like the acuity though. Can you talk a little bit about that stuff? Yeah, sure. So um, I have a, a mobile application called Acuity and it's literally a 360 review that is continuous and ongoing. So you can get ongoing feedback um, about how the world sees you. It's kind of like a, a Yelp for you. So the idea being, right, if um, I have say three characteristics that I want to test at a time, I can select from this this list of 90 traits and skill sets that I might be interested in knowing you know, more about myself on. Um, so say I select you know, humor as one of them. I rate myself on a sliding scale of one to 10. How, how humorous am I? This is 
going somewhere. This is actually the first beta test that I did, right? I was like, I'm pretty funny. I'm gonna rate myself as a seven, nah, eight. I'm funny, right? I'm, I'm rating myself as an eight. And then you send it to your friends, family, colleagues, coworkers, clients, whoever it is that you want to be getting anonymous feedback from. And they rate you on the same sliding scale for each of these traits. And after a week, you get the results. Now you can't see who rated you what, but you will see where your gaps are. And so when, when I first beta tested this and I was like, yeah, I'm funny, eight, eight out of 10, I sent it just to my family. And I got back twos, RJ, twos. And I was like, no, I did the thing that all leaders do, right? Like, no, 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 they don't know me. That's ridiculous. Come on, that's, that's not. And then I paused and I was like, why am I having this defensive response, right? Asking myself the why, being curious and saying, huh, because I've been showing up using humor as my main skill set, as my main tool in my toolbox for years. And they don't value me for that. And that's a, that's a hurt, right? That's a deep moment to go, wait a second, that's a blind spot. Now, what I did learn is that they value me for empathy. I rated myself really low on empathy and they said, no, 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 you're, you're very empathetic. So now I get to show up to my family, not using humor, which I thought was my strength and it turns out it's not, but with an actual strength that they truly value me for. So it's a pretty powerful way to start covering some of those blind spots or um, recovering from some of them. And, and one of the things that you touched on when we were communicating offline was this piece on habits and you can't squish habits. We don't know we have, and you have yeah. to choose better habits and replace automatic negative thoughts and instincts with an alternative. So what you're yeah. saying is you can't go from zero to 60. You need to shift through step changes. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a couple of things there. One, like if I just found out that I'm not funny, I'm like, oh my gosh, well, I want to be funny. I just, I can't just, right. You have to be willing to pause and bite the lemon. Right. I, there's a, there's an American saying, right. When life throws you lemons, what are you supposed to do? Make lemonade. There it is. Nobody's throwing you sugar. They're just throwing you lemons. Sometimes you just have to bite the lemon and accept and become aware of the fact that this, okay, this isn't, this isn't a strength of mine and that's okay. But what our brain tends to do is it creates this automatic negative thought of I'm a failure. I'll never be good enough. I'm never like those, those awful, awful called ants for a reason because they swarm, right? They just completely circle your brain. And we want to get rid of those because they're not helpful. They were helpful for our ancestors because our ancestors were like, oh, hey, that thing behind me, it's probably a tiger. I better run, right? They were, the, they were the automatic negative thoughts that kept us alive. But today they're preventing us from fully living, right? They're, they're saying, oh, you're a failure. You're not good at this. That's, that's not death anymore. So in order to replace them, we know from the power of habit, right? We can't just stop smoking. We have to replace it with something like gum chewing. So what we do with ants is we replace them with the warm fuzzies, pets, okay? Practice enlightened thoughts. These are practice, they take work. But things like I'm a failure become, wait a second, I'm not a failure, I'm not ready yet. That's your pet. So I'm not ready yet. I, I didn't achieve what I wanted to achieve. What do I need to do now in order to, to execute here, right? I, I fail at that ultra marathon, I'm a failure. No, you're not. You weren't ready, you weren't prepared. How will I prepare? Or I'm not worthy, I'm not enough. I, I hate this one, right? Because nobody's ever paused and asked themselves, for whom, right? Who are you trying to be enough for? 
What if instead you showed up and you just decided I am worthy, I am enough, I am as I am enough. What that does is it changes your brain, right? Just the same way we were talking before about the stories we tell and how placebo can manifest in, in massive ways and massive changes. Now, if I'm enough, I'm showing up and I'm like showing up confident. I'm showing up like stronger in my relationships, able to communicate better because the brain doesn't really know the difference between stress and fear and excitement. This is one of the most beautiful replacements for, for an ant, for those automatic negative thoughts of like, oh, I'm stressed, I'm scared, I'm really nervous. Think about public speaking, right? Most people are, are afraid of public speaking, right? Oh gosh, I'm really scared. And we tell ourselves the story and the brain hates to be wrong. So what do we do? We go fulfill that story and we're nervous and we're scared and we're sweating and, and it goes terribly wrong. But if instead we decide, I must be excited because the brain and the body release the exact same hormonal cocktail under stress as they do under excitement, right? So we're experiencing the same thing in our body. We're just gonna tell our brain a different story, right? I'm excited, that's what's going on here. Now, you and I both know, RJ, we deep down, we know that we're actually still nervous. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we tell our brains we're excited. It starts to shift the chemistry so that we actually do better. We perform better. That's the whole visualization you were talking about. It's, it's the whole idea of telling the story you want to be true. Because at the end of the day, life is either an adventure or an ordeal. And we get the power to interpret which path we want to go down. I just while you were talking was realizing how powerful it could be if we teached our children explicitly about the power of narrative in school. Like, if you think about that, like, fuck all the other stuff that, I mean, kids will always be good or bad or in between and, or have certain skills. There's too many variables, but what can be controlled if they're taught is the power of their narrative. Because ultimately, if you look at performance, let's talk about performance. Yep. And I, I talked about this actually um, on a podcast I was at. If I'm looking at performance and high performance, and I've got five people sitting around me, I'm actually looking at their narratives. I'm barely, I'm not even looking at them as such. I'm, I'm really just looking at narratives and they all represent various narratives. If, and if I'm to predict who's going to be able to surmount a task, all I need to do is be exposed to your narrative. Yep. And Joe DeSena and I talked about it as well. Like in the Spartan races, you know, he's had people that are elite military not be able to finish and moms and CEOs that can, because it comes down to narrative. What are you telling yourself? And I think these, and I, you know, I know we're all familiar with Carol Dweck's work. I think she's starting to shift that whole space in, in school and academia, which is good, but maybe we need to be arming our children and our young with this kind of education versus, you know, one plus one, which is okay. That's great. But you know, Man, I, I wish we would. And honestly, this is this fascinatingly, I think, comes back to the narrative we talked about masculine and feminine, in that for a long time, these sort of skills, they're referred to as soft skills, right? They're not hard. They're not the things that right. as men we need to know. Mm. A terrible narrative narrative to be telling, right? These are soft skills. These are these are your intuition. This is listening to yourself, emotional intelligence. That that's women's realm. And I think for a long time, it stayed in the women's realm. And so we haven't taught it. We haven't valued it. And 
truly it is as you as you so aptly put there it's the difference between winning a race and not showing up you know it's the difference between being able to stick it out being resilient being powerful and telling yourself ah it's all right i didn't go all in it's fine i'll 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 do it next year maybe you know it is it is so fundamental to the way we show up and function and i think you were you were asking about the the stress curve right and how we can we can use biology to work with us rather than against us. And I think the same narrative occurs when we talk about stress, because look, there's not a person that is living today that isn't stressed, right? And we talk about like, oh, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I can't, ah, I'm too stressed. Well, yeah, if you didn't have stress, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning, right? It's not a bad thing necessarily. It's the story we tell about it. Because stress, if, if you think of stress and performance, um, it's an it's a inverse U-shaped curve, right? It's a normal curve. So if you have zero stress in your life, you're a trust fund baby, everything is provided for you, you, you have no need or desire to perform. So it's no performance. It's a little bit of stress actually increases your performance. It's saying, okay, I have to get this done by Friday. Now I have a deadline, Ooh, I'm a little stressed. Or I have to do you know, X, Y, Z by the great now I'm stressed. Now your performance increases to a point. It's only when you get to that point where you're like, ooh, too much, this is overwhelming, ah, that your performance starts to decrease. And so recognizing where you are on that curve and telling yourself the appropriate story for that moment. I can do this. I have until Friday. I have plenty of time. I've got this. And actually just telling yourself that story. Because we know from research, if we tell people, hey, you've got plenty of time to solve this puzzle, or hey, you're not going to have enough time to solve this puzzle, and you give them the exact amount of time, guess which one gets done, right? Where they think they have enough time, no problem. The one that says, oh, I don't have enough time. I'll never do it never finishes it. So it's so much the story that we tell ourselves, here's where I am on the performance curve. I'm here, I'm optimal. I'm, I'm just enough stress to, to really ride the tiger. And then when I get to this side, it's caging those tigers. It's recognizing, hey, this, this stress, it's not gonna kill me. This is not the life or death situation that my brain is making it to be. I can cage it, I can put it away and get back up to the, to the top of that performance peak. It's effectively, you know, I know for myself, like if I've got a presentation and I have enough time, I'll just start it. Even right. if like, because I know once I start it, that level of procrastination and anxiety is gone. I'm, I'm preparing for a huge race, which I'm physically under cooked for. It was a last minute entry. And on the weekend, uh, there was a local group running and I ran more than I really needed to. But I knew that psychologically, if I did that, I would feel the stress would go and I'd be on that path to, okay, I'm prepared, I'm preparing, not, oh shit, will I be prepared? So it's about knowing and being skillful with working with yourself to kind of almost trick your brain into um, operating with a certain level of positivity and, and using stress in your external environment to your advantage. So what I'd like to do is move into instincts. So there's a lot of talk about blind sides and instincts. How do we leverage our instincts to, and I suppose that's what we're talking about is a competitive advantage. Like how do we, how do we work with them yeah. to actually not just be, but actually to, to propel ourselves? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the first and probably easiest response to that is to is to work with the biology of the stress instinct rather than against it. You know, we, we have a tendency to fight against it. And instead of embracing it and sort of inoculating ourselves against stress, which is what you just described in, in training in saying, I have to run this far, but I'm going to run this far because I can push myself and now I'm telling a different story. This is the, the kind of training that we give to, to Navy SEALs, right? Is you show up and you do this extensive, really tough thing, knowing you're not going to die, right? That's, that's huge, that's paramount. You have to know this isn't an actual life or death situation. It may feel like it, but you're not going to die. So now you have this massive stress response, right? And I'm stressed and I'm worried and I'm telling myself this story and then nothing bad happens. And I layer down this, oh, okay, I'm all right. For example, it, this is something that really easy to do. You can go up and you can ask um, for a discount on a cup of coffee, right? Go to your bar and say, yeah, can I get 10% off your order today? Now, <laughs> I know it sounds, it sounds easy, go try. It's terrifying. We're gonna have this crazy stress response for no particular reason, right? Because nothing bad is going to happen. The worst case scenario is your barista says, no. Okay. And then you walk out, you know, with your cup of coffee, nothing bad. Now we've trained our brain and our brain says, ah, I had a stress response. Didn't need it. Everything's fine. And we do it again. And we go out tomorrow and we grab a book of songs and we start singing on the, on the street corner. And it's super weird. And everybody's rejecting us and they're walking to the other side and we're having stress response as a result of this. And then once again, we don't die. And our brain layers this down and says, huh, you had another stress response and you didn't die today. Hmm. Now, when stress finds you, when fear finds you, when you're not actively seeking it, your brain has all of this data to refer back to it. It's just like, you know, training a muscle. We've trained our brain just to respond differently when it has a stress response. Now I'm having a stress response and I'm going, oh, hey, we know what this is. Remember all those other times when we did this and we didn't need it? We're fine, brain. <sighs> Relax. Can take a deep breath slow down all of the dispensing of, of the hormones. And now, just like you train a muscle, you've trained your brain to react differently under stress than everybody else in the world. And it's so simple. It's so simple. It's easy to do. It's profound. And uh, we were talking to um, a guest last week who you would love, by the way. She was the first Apache female helicopter pilot. She wrote a book called True Grit, where she interviewed other high-ranking women in the military and it's framed as grit and kind of developing grit in the most male dominated uh, in, you know there we talk about you know um gender gender and stuff but uh we talked about the power of illustrative examples building those illustrative examples to yourself that you can do this and that's why i find and particularly in the recovery community people when they get sober, they hit the eject button or on the path to sobriety, a lot of people hit the eject button before they build up enough days to at certain point, you'll realize I haven't drank, I haven't used, I actually can do this in your building. And I know you know about this stuff, your own, your own narrative. And you're like, I can be successful here. And people asked me when I got sober, how I was able to go from being an absolute um, kind of deadbeat addict to hyper successful in the material sense. It was because the power of getting sober was such, it, it took everything I had, but yeah. it was a gift in the sense that it proved to me, 
I was capable of doing anything. I literally believe that. Like I literally believe that if I was willing to suffer through anything, I can do it. I got to put in the work. None of this magical thinking shit. Right. I got to put in the work. Yeah. If I put in the work, I got it. And even yeah. if I fall short, you know, you reach to the moon, you might hit the stars kind of thing. So, so right. I think that it totally resonates for me. And I really want to talk about fear. Mm. Touched on it. How do we increase our capacity to manage fear? You know, we talk about courage. Is this something that we can practice on purpose? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's kind of the training that I was just describing, but like, I think what, what you just said is resonating for me, you know, the, the, the power of community, you're talking about, you know, AA and the, and the community of it. And I, I often will challenge people in some of these stress inoculation um, exercises. I call them discomfort challenges, right? Because all growth occurs outside of your comfort zone. What does that freaking mean? It means our brain is constantly pulling us to safety what it believes and interprets is safe. But the reality is this over here, this new path is, is powerful. It's, it's new thinking. It's, it's positive thinking. It's, this is what I can do. Um, so getting back to community, I'll, I'll ask people to have a dance party. And it's, you know, usually a large group of people and, you know, a hundred people is like, woo, yeah, let's go. And there's no problem there. Right. And then I say, okay, RJ, just you what? And suddenly it's like, oh, wait, we went from having a lot of fun together in this discomfort because we're all together in it to, oh my God, now it's just me and I have to perform. And what happens is this starts happening. We've got this fear of rejection, right? Suddenly, well, what if I don't dance well? What are they going to say? What are people, we start doing this comparison thing. And so I think it's really helpful for people to recognize this. When I, when I do that, I ask the crowd, I'll say, okay, RJ, you don't have to do this, but I'm going to ask you right now to sing the Star Spangled Banner or sing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or sing whatever it is you want, you know, soprano style, lots of vibrato, give it to us. Now, let's just say you do it and you're terrible. <laughs> How do we feel about RJ? And everybody's like, yeah. like, bravo, good for you. Like, wow. And I ask, okay, well, let's just say he does it and he's good. How do we feel about him? Oh, yeah, bravo, positive emotions still. So what is it that stops us? Oh, right, it's this nagging fear back here in our own heads that says, well, we're gonna suck and we're gonna get rejected and, and everybody will see us for this failure. And we don't see that for one another. We only see it for ourselves. And so recognizing that That's allows- profound. Yeah, exactly. That's I mean, profound, yep. Right, I, it, when I finally realized that, I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'm gonna have a dance party. I don't care how ridiculous I look because it's fun and I enjoy it. And turns out, there's science to support this, right? We, we value people when they're human. It's why we love Jennifer Lawrence so much. You know, the actress, she's a great actress and we love her because she screws up all the time and owns it. Like she falls at red carpet events and she's laughing about it. She's not trying to play it off like nothing happened. We love her for her man. Her you have to though, can I ask, can I ask you a question? Please, to, please. To, to fully realize that, do you have to have a certain level of street cred? I don't think so. Do you know what I mean, though? Like, if, Je if, if Jennifer Lawrence was in such a dynamic and beautiful actress, 
and she right. was kind of the new kid on the block. Could it be perceived differently? Mm. Oh, that's a really great question. It could be situational, yeah. right? Yeah, I think I think the question is, yeah, it is situational. Um, but at the end of the day, are you Jennifer Lawrence? Is the person next to me who's singing Jennifer Lawrence? I still value them more because they're showing their humanity. I, agree. I think it, it's accentuated because she's in a position where we're like, oh, that's we worship the stars, right? We're like, oh, you're so special. No, she's the same as you and I. Um, I think it, it's more credit to her because she is in a position where that status and that need to be ideal and perfect is really high pressure. But I think, you know, Joe walking down the street who's whistling a tune, I like him. I like him better than somebody who's like not. Well, that's why Obama was loved, right? And is liked right. because he showed right. sides of himself that's not typical for a president, right? And he an amazing face and cried. Mm -hmm. oh, I mean, my heart just exploded. Yeah. You see the humanity in people. I, I sometimes refer, uh, refer to that as flaunting your kryptonite. Right. So if, if you imagine Superman, who was That's amazing, and powerful and everything, he ran around his whole life avoiding kryptonite. If instead he flaunted it and said, hey, world, uh, kryptonite, it's, it's a problem for me. Well, now not only do we respect him more, but we've empowered a team. We've empowered, you know, this is the point of community of AA, of, so, of somebody saying, okay, the first point, the first step is admitting I have a problem, right? Kryptonite is a problem for me. Well, great. Wonder Woman can come in now and say, doesn't affect me. I got you. When, when there's situations with kryptonite, I got your back. So the more, and it's so hard because for us to be vulnerable, we have to respect the fact that everybody else is going to see us more positively. And our brain does not think that's possible. We, we had a, um, a runner, beautiful woman, young woman, her, her name's Amelia Lati, and she studied she's Finnish and she studied the concept of sisu concept of uh perseverance grit endurance it's all kind of it's 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 different but has uh, related to grit and she studied under Angela Duckworth at UPenn and she also talked about sisu being enabled when individuals have this sense of psychological safety it's actually what you're talking about because she talked about the power of community as well. And, and I know, for instance, when I go on endurance runs in, in, in 40, 50, 60, 70 K plus, if I'm doing it in a race, in a community, it's very different to when I do solo runs. I haven't collect, there's a collective energy there. In fact, that's why I like to do solo runs because I find it harder yeah, you're training yourself. There. Well, you can't draw on anyone. And even in a trail race, you can't see anyone. You know you're suffering collectively. There's a power in that versus it, this fear that might hit you 30 or 40 kilometers out in the middle of nowhere that you're by yourself. Yeah. And yeah, and it's what you're talking about. Um, so I think there is merit in training like that sometimes and training like that in life. But the power of community, I could never have done what I'd done without the, the community of 12 step, no chance, no yeah. chance. I was anchored in a way that I needed that space to play for many years before I can go out into the real world and have a crack. So um, I mm. take that on board. So I wanna talk about something that I think you would understand 
quite about given, and we'll talk about your story um, a little bit later, but let's talk about spirituality and in, in the context of fear and instincts, because I have this belief, this theory that when you boil it all down, spirituality and religion is a means for us to mitigate the downsides of our instincts to a certain degree. That's why it was created. And if you look at religion in its worst or harshest form, there is a lot of, you, you know, there's a lot of vilification of our instincts. Hmm. Yeah. Now let's talk about that, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because it's my view that people that seem to overcome and have awareness of their instincts have this spirituality play, whether they recognize it as traditional spirituality or not. And I want to talk about that. It's fascinating that you say this because when I, when I pitched my book initially, so I have a new book called Instinct, right? And it has seven, seven instincts in it for good reason, because they were initially the seven deadly sins. There we go. Which which are our instincts, right? And, and so to, to your point, I think, you know, religion as a, I mean, that obviously is, is a Christian Judeo religion base, but like the seven deadly sins, it's, it's controlling our instincts. It's lust. Well, that's their sex instinct, right? It's, it's envy, you know, our, our tendency to collect things to, to seek out variety. It's all of these instincts that are powerfully driven. And I think religion kind of says, okay, here's how you control it. And I'm not sure it always did so in a very healthy manner. Um, In fact, I'll show my biases here. I I think most of religion, most religions period um, are are often based in a a system of control that is not healthy for most individuals. For a few slim proportion of the population who is in control largely around the world, that's who it benefits. But um, can I ch- chime in there? My view is that people that seem to have managed their instincts through religion operate with a high level of fear. Yes, because it, it's all fear-based, hmm. right? It's all fear-based. It's, um, and again, I'll, I'll go back to Christian Judeo because that's just the where, where I was brought up. It's if you don't control this, you go to hell. <laughs> okay, I don't want to burn in eternal damnation. I mean, like, got it. I will take control of that instinct. And, and it is such a powerful notion because our brain is like, I avoid anything negative. That is the thing that we focus on the most. So I, actually there's one way to, that I use a lot with, with teams is, um, is harnessing this, this idea of, okay, if we're going to focus on the negative, which is what religion does, like don't do this or X will happen. Like our brain is locked in. I don't want the bad thing to happen. So I often will say, can we create a common enemy? Can we create something that we all fight against that's more positive? So I'm going to fight against negative thinking, for example, or I'm going to fight against COVID. For God's sakes, we're in the middle of a pandemic. If we work together to fight against this thing that is bigger than race or gender or religion or um or continent, right? Like we're all affected by this. Let's fight against it together. We have an opportunity to unite rather than to push apart. And um, often what, what religion does is it takes our instincts and says, okay, now let's separate you out into groups because it's easier to control that 
So women, you do this, men, you do that, and we can keep you controlled. People who look like this, you are slaves. People who look like that, you are masters. Now you are controlled. And, and instead, of, instead of embracing the instincts and seeing them as something beautiful that we can work with to achieve humanity um, being more united. Like if, if we have a brain that sees negativity, that looks for the enemy, great. Let's give them an enemy. Just make it something better than race, religion, gender, you know, where you happen to be born. It, there's, there's a great power there to actually unite people um, when we begin to work with our instincts rather than against them. I, I remember as a child asking my mom um, when I saw the, that movie Independence Day with Will Smith. Yes. Realization that like the greatest opportunity for humanity to unite is through an existential threat by an alien attack. Because this all the bullshit, will end. all the bullshit will end. Russia, yeah. U.S., blah blah blah. Like you know, China. Like resources will be collated. Will be, yeah. will be, will be operating as one. But it's interesting, isn't it? So that is such a beautiful way of articulating. Like it takes a level of awareness, though, and human beings in power to be willing to make the first move towards peace. That's it's going to take courage. Right. It will. It'll, it'll take it out of the scarcity mindset, mm. right? That, that if I take, or, or if you take this, there's mm. still plenty for me, right? Mm. Like, give me the recipe, take, take the whole pie and just give me the recipe and we'll make more, right? It's, it's, there's not a limited amount of resources for everyone. We can collaboratively like create an environment where there is plenty for everyone. And we, we get so trapped in this scarcity mindset that it drives us apart it's the it's the fear um that keeps us apart so it's such a fascinating conversation like this this conversation is a place where evolutionary biology has met spirituality and human performance and i know a lot of people like eckhart told they're able to bring this stuff together i mean he's not even an evolutionary biologist but he understands he under there's a deep level of introspection there and understanding on the human uh, ego and I suppose how the human how we conduct ourselves and I think it's quite fascinating so I want to I want to go you know and I don't always do this with with every guest because I like to focus on the material but I think your story and how how you came into this will be very impactful for, for people. Can you talk about your story, Rebecca, in regards to your trials and tribulations you had as a, as a young woman, how you grew up and how that then shaped and formed you into what you're currently doing? How long do we have? <laughs> um, yeah, of course. I, I think, you know, I, I'll, I'll start the story when I'm, when I'm eight. And I, when I'm eight years old, I know exactly who I am, what I want to become. I am feeling empowered. I love the theater, right? I love the stage. I want to be on stage. I want to be delivering art, you know, to people and, uh, and enriching them their lives through art. And uh, I come from a very small town, so there weren't a whole lot of opportunities. Where? What state? Uh, upstate New York. Upstate New York, okay. Norwich, New York. It is like a little blip on the map. If you, if you drive through the one stoplight, you'll miss it. Okay. Um, so it's, it's a really small town. There weren't a whole lot of theater opportunities, right? So I joined the 4-H, which is a, an American institution, which, um, you know, sort of empowers young 
people, get them, gets them together, usually around farm communities. That's where I grew up. Um, and I joined 4-H because there was an opportunity for me to do public speaking competitions. And at eight years old, I, I sign up and I get on stage for my city competition and I win. Now there's like one other competitor, right? A small town, but it builds my confidence, right? It builds that narrative of, wow, hey, you can do this. Great. So then I, I go to county and I win my county. And now people are starting to talk, right? They're like, oh, she's, she's good. And I'm like, yes. And I feel the confidence. And all of a sudden I realize I'm going to States. And now people have valued me for this thing. My identity, my role is tied to this thing that I do, public speaking. And I get to, to States and I'm starting to like, panic because I'm going what happens if if I don't do well like what will people say will I even have value anymore and it gets so in my head that I don't even show up I played sick the day of the competition because I was so scared of of failing and it was that fear of failure that I started questioning again and again and I went through a ton of failure in my life but it it took me um, well, I'll tell you another pivotal point in my life where I, I switched careers because, because I was so afraid of failure, I stuck to the things I was good at and I was good at science, right? I was really good at science and math. And so I went out and I earned a, a degree and I was like, oh, good. I'm getting rewarded for that. So now I'm going to go earn another degree and then I'm going to earn another degree. And I just followed this safe path. Now it was fascinating. I loved it. I still love it. I, I am very blessed that I get to put on these glasses and look through, look through the, the lens of evolutionary psychology every day. And I, I love it, but it's still, I was still operating from this place of safety. And, um, you know, I had a really cushy, comfy job, um, professorship where I was like, man, I could do this for the next 20 years and retire 30 years, 50 years, whatever it was. And at that moment, um, my, my sister, actually she's my sister-in-law, but she's been more like a sister to me for 20 years was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And there was this instant change that comes when you get news like that. Um, and I started thinking about how many decisions I had made in my life based on fear. And the reality hit me that if that had been me, if I had gotten that diagnosis, I would be so deeply disappointed with my life. And so that year, um, actually that week, <laughs> I quit my job. I sold my house. I divorced my husband. I went through this massive, I mean, just absolutely rock bottom. Let me tell you how bad it got. There was a, I was homeless. Like I didn't have anywhere to go because I didn't think this through, right? It was just, I need to make a change and stop living my life out of fear. Um, and I wanted to be there to support my sister and, um, and it wasn't a moment of great thought. It was a moment of action. And so I, I remember- They're generally the best though, aren't they? They They're, are, they you know, at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I'll tell you, there was a time I had a dog and that was pretty much it. And I, I'd stayed in a hotel because I had no place to go at the, this moment. And I stayed at a crappy hotel because I couldn't really afford much. And I woke up covered in like bed bug bites. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is it. This is my life now. And I hit that lowest of low points and said, all right, what are you going to do about it? What, what do you do? What do you love to do? What was your childhood dream? Right? I started going and reflecting a little bit and saying, okay, what decision would you have made differently if you knew that at this point you were going to get that diagnosis? And, um, and I started speaking again and I, you know, I gave a, a TEDx and I started, you know, really honing this, this concept of, of evolutionary behavior and understanding the brain and how we can apply it to our own lives to live more fearlessly.
fear of Leslie. Yeah. Um, the idea that, look, there are some actual tigers out there. There are some real life threatening situations. They're important to pay attention to. But most of the things that we fear are things that keep us locked into safety. And I refuse to live a life of mediocrity anymore because all I wanted was to not be making decisions from, from fear. And so um, as a result of that, I, I launched a speaking career. I'm a full-time speaker, author, and founded a, a company, a tech company. Um, you know, and, and I, I don't want to make this a glorious story of everything was perfect. I'm, you know, I'm, I found a, a wonderful partner. Uh, we're blessed and, and lucky. And, and yes, there was a lot of luck. Yes, there was a lot of hard work. Yes, there was a lot of changing narrative. And I think the, the biggest thing that I can give people from, from my story is recognizing how many decisions you make automatically or you make because it's what you should do or what you're supposed to do or what is the safe choice. Instead of pausing and saying, wait a second, if I die tomorrow, will I be satisfied with the life that I've lived? And if the answer is even a hesitation of a moment, take some time, think about that. It's powerful, Rebecca. Reflecting on your death is something that I tell people to do all the time. It's actually a, a form of meditation and it will really enable us to focus on the priorities and the essentials. And I really appreciate your honesty. The subject material is fascinating. I, I, I've always been a huge fan of Jared Diamond. Uh, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think our conversation, if we had one, would be kind of boring. So I'm glad I had you on because it's a, oh, a much more animated conversation than I believe I would have with Jared. But I mean, I, I'm fascinated with this stuff because even in my addiction, you know, when I'd be up for nights, I would be reading his work and other work because I thought that I had some form of biological issue that mm. kept me where I was at. And it was a really weird spun out thinking, but I had this warp thinking that there was something in my biology that was dooming me to the path that I was on. And I obviously found out that wasn't the case. But again, I really, really want to thank you for joining us on Alter Habits. It was so impactful, uh, great conversation. Where can people find you, Rebecca? Like if we want to learn more about you, where do we find you? Yeah, the, the easiest place is probably my website. You can find all the other places on there. So my website is Rebecca Heiss, that's H-E-I-S-S dot -S, um, com. Uh, or you can find me on all the socials at Dr. Rebecca Heiss, just Dr. Rebecca Heiss um, on Insta and Twitter and all the all the places. Um, and I'd, I'd love to hear from you. You know, I'm, I'm always excited to talk to new people and get new ideas and insights. So if something spoke to you, don't hesitate to reach out. Well, thank you very much again, Rebecca. And absolute pleasure. I have had such a great time. Thank you for having me on. Of course. And we'll definitely keep in contact offline. Sounds great.